Welcome to Authentic Influence with host Anthony Chansamuth, the show where we get real and share the stories and struggles, strategies and tactics of successful influencers and entrepreneurs so that you too can take action to create the life and business that you choose. And now over to Anthony. Welcome to Authentic Influence. This is Anthony Chansamuth from Simple Creative Marketing. And we are talking about how to build a successful remote company today, uh, which is certainly a topic uh, that I am 100%, 100% uh, fascinated by and have been working on for the last decade almost now um, in, in different capacities. So uh, I've actually had the pleasure of interviewing this gentleman a while ago when I ran a summit called Remote Business Summit. And um, and we first learned about uh, the different companies that, that Liam's been building uh, and how he even got into this space. But we're going to cover some of that in this episode. Uh, and really, we're going to dig into um, the business of running remote uh, what, uh, how you can learn from that, how you, what takeaways you can take around building a team remotely, um, and what's changing in, in that world, because obviously the pandemic has come through, uh, and more people are running remote now than they were before. Um, so let's bring on, uh, well, before we bring him on, I'm just going to, uh, share a bit about our guest. So Liam Martin is, uh, the co-founder, co-organizer and CMO of, uh, Time Doctor, dot com staff.com and running remote conference which is uh the largest world's largest remote work conference um he's a serial entrepreneur speaker writer he's uh one of the most popular time uh, staff.com and uh, and time doctor uh one of the most popular time tracking and productivity software platforms in use by top brands today um and Liam is an avid proponent of remote work and has been published in Forbes Inc Mashable TechCrunch uh, or all of the media publications and many others, specifically targeting the expansion of remote work. Um, and so the mission statement that feeds all the products and services that Liam is involved with stem from empowering workers to work wherever they want, whenever they want. Uh, he's an undergraduate and graduate degree, has an undergraduate and graduate degree in sociology from McGill University that's in Canada. Um, and he lives in Canada, but travels three to six months of the year due to his ability to work wherever and wherever, whenever he likes. That may have been impacted by COVID. Um, but uh, so uh, let's bring on Liam. Welcome to the show, mate. Hey, thanks for having me. That was a fantastic uh, table read of my standard bio. Yeah, I'm sure there's more to that. So you're, you're a family man, aren't you? That is true. Yes, I have an 18-month daughter um, who is dominating more and more of my work week every single week. It's it's kind of crazy, actually, how much time. Initially, when I was, uh, when we had Stella, <clears throat> I thought, oh, man, this is great. She sleeps like 18 hours a day. <laughs> I can get as much work as I want done. Now she's up all the time and she has opinions and she uh, she wants to point at things and get them described to her 24 seven. So it's uh, definitely a lot of work, but a lot of fun. So what's that journey been like going from, you know, serial entrepreneur, busy, you know, in, in different capacities, uh, obviously you have a partner and then going to be like switching into daddy mode. Is that a thing? Like, is that where you have to go? Okay. Well, like I have to actually, she's taking my attention that there's no, uh, ifs and buts, right? Like that, that's like, I want daddy and or whatever. And then you go, okay, I need to focus here. <laughs> yeah, it was interesting. When we ended up 
I mean, when, when she was born, it was a really interesting transition for me because I much preferred to spend time with Stella than work on the business, uh, which was a little, a little bit interesting. Uh, and I'd never had, you know, uh, the business was the first love and then, and it, and then it switched, um, almost just in an unconscious way. It was so weird. Just one day I woke up and thought, man, I, I'd much prefer to spend my time with Stella than work on the business. And I'm very, very passionate about my job. So that was an interesting realization. And I just had to manage that energy. So every day I wake her up or she wakes me up more specifically. We go down, I have breakfast with her and we spend our time together. Then she goes off to, um, to, um, and Galdari, I don't know what that is in English, but her daycare. And, yeah. uh, and then at the end of the day, I can pick her back up and we can spend time together. So I just work within that like eight to five, 6 p.m. window. And now it just means I've got to cut it off completely, which is actually very good for people that work from home. You don't want your work life turning into your work life. So it's important to be able to make that clear division. I've heard that a lot, like from mates of mine who have become parents. Like I'm not there yet, but certainly uh, just how the demands of, of being a parent and the presence required, right, to be with your child, um, it forces you to look at productivity in a different way. Um, mm. To look at, you know, like you said, you've, you've, got, you've got hard constraints now. Like I need to be there for Stella or, or whatever, daycare or whatever. I need to do these things. And as she grows older, maybe you're driving her to school or these other things are going on. Um, so, Absolutely. So that, yeah. Yeah. I took two weeks in Spain um, in November and I was doing a couple conferences throughout Spain at that time and uh, just completely missed, uh, missed baby Stella throughout that, that period. And then also it's a major sacrifice for my partner. Uh, she needs to be able to take care of the child hundred percent on her own. So it's difficult to be able to weigh those two different options. And you really just have to kind of, again, create that space um, for, for a child, particularly because, and we've probably both seen this where children of entrepreneurs end up really turning into, I don't know if I can swear on here, but it starts with A. <laughs> A-holes uh, yes. that, that end up really just kind of being, you know, the nanny is managing them and they're, there's not, they're not getting that direct interaction with their parent and nothing can replace, um, you know, two loving, discernible parents. Uh, there's no better, there's no better unit in the world than two parents being able to work with a child and you can't replace that with nannies. You can't replace that with help. You can't just buy your way out of that situation. So I tell a lot of people now, like, if you're thinking about having kids, think about it hard because your business will become the second woman effectively to uh, your first love, which will be your children. Uh, that's such a good point. Like, I think, and I'm glad you brought, you brought it up because, <laughs> yes, we have seen uh, – children of entrepreneurs become a-holes <laughs> uh and, and yeah and, and that like i mean i grew up with you know in, in with both parents dad worked a lot he was doing graveyard shifts because he was a mechanic and he worked like you know um i don't know midnight through to six or seven, eight a.m or something so I, i'd rarely see him uh right. and, and it wasn't until may like seriously it wasn't until my sort of late 
20s where I kind of realized, oh my gosh, I actually have, what do they call it? You know, um, there's a, there's a, uh, something goes on where, where, where you, you feel like that the parent left you. Um, mm, abandonment. Your abandonment yeah, issues. And, and it's kind of like, oh my gosh, and, and didn't really address that or didn't occur to me that was a thing. Because um, I saw him on weekends and things like that, but but just you know I didn't have the typical dads at home playing right. with me kind of situation. Um, and he wasn't an entrepreneur; he just had a regular job. But I can imagine, you know, for those entrepreneurs who can't switch off, um, that that's that you know you could be in the room with with your kids, but if you're not present with them, um, that they'll still feel it, right? And and they'll have issues yeah. and. Uh, um, fascinating place to be. Um, yeah. yeah, the easiest, uh, the, the biggest problem that I see is um, entrepreneurs buying their way out of that problem. So mm. they are just hiring a nanny or two nannies or sometimes even three to be able to just say, okay, well, problem solved. I have someone that's managing the kids. You're not really managing the kids. You're actually just putting them in a kind of a, a stasis, right? They're right. not really being parented at that point. A nanny isn't a parent. And uh, it's important to be able to make that very clear, at least to friends of mine that are thinking about getting into entrepreneurship and for people that are probably listening and watching right now. Good message. Good message. Okay. Well, let's, let's talk about uh, building a, a, a remote company and, and some of the insights you've had from that. Um, sure. Now this, you know, the focus of this podcast really is uh, B2B marketing and, and, and we're going to talk about um, just sort of your marketing uh, philosophies. So let's, and we'll get into um, uh, what you've learned about building remote teams. Uh, but I'd like to start with just an understanding of a key philosophy or mindset that you have that really drives how you go about marketing for a business. Sure. I mean, so the first thing is you've got to have a good product in place, right? So a lot of people kind of put the cart before the horse. And just because I can sell something to you doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to buy it. A good product people buy, a good salesperson sells. So you need to be able to make sure that you understand those two differentiators, because if you don't understand that, then any of the advice that I'm going to give you next doesn't really matter. But fundamentally, get a good product in place, solve a problem that I actually believe should be your own personal problem. So not a problem that other people have. I can give you an example. I have a friend of mine that ended up um, building a building a booking software product for tattoo parlors. And he said, yeah, I'm going to make so much money, you know, making this product for tattoo parlors. And uh, the guy didn't have any tattoos and he didn't work in a tattoo parlor and he didn't know, know any tattoo artists. And I thought to myself, okay, uh, you really need to go get a tattoo, dude. Like right now, today, you need to go to a tattoo parlor and get a tattoo. Not only that, I think you should get like completely kitted out from <laughs> top to bottom because if you don't truly understand your customer and it's not an itch that you are deeply committed towards, it's not going to matter how good the product is uh, fundamentally. And, and you're really not going to pursue that 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 deep down desire to get through the three to five years of crap before the product actually starts to take off. With Time Doctor, as an example, I ran an online tutoring company uh, and the tutoring company was having a problem, which was I'd bill a student for 10 hours, the student wouldn't come back to me and say, hey, I worked with my tutor for five hours, not 10. I'd go to the tutor and say, 
you build for 10, but he said you worked for five. And he said, no, I worked for 10. So I'd end up having to refund the student for five hours and then pay the tutor for the full 10 hours. And that was really destroying the business. And I needed a way to be able to track time remotely that was auditable by multiple parties so that everyone could agree on the definition of truth that I spent 10 hours working with this person. That was a really deep down problem that I had inside of my previous business, which is why I'm so passionate about solving that problem inside of Time Doctor and then staff.com. And then obviously also to running remote, which came to my second deep problem, which was how the heck do you actually build billion dollar companies remotely? Uh, there's a whole bunch of information about how to build a, or how to hire a virtual assistant as an example, or how to sm build small teams, but there wasn't that much information. And again, this was like 2018, 2017. Uh, so I know that a whole bunch of that information has now been presented today, but there wasn't any of that information at that time. So I thought to myself, okay, building, building billion dollar businesses remotely, it's definitely possible. I have friends of mine that have done it. And let's just try to get that message out to many more people so that if anything happens, if no one attends that conference and I attend it, at least I would get more value out of it and I'd be able to build my business um, faster otherwise. So start with that core desire and that itch to solve a problem that is personally an issue for you. I really like that message and I agree wholeheartedly uh, that it's important to and this is why I say it's challenging to try and start a business where you have no skin in the game or have no, like you said, the, the, the tattoo parlor where the, the person who's running the business has no tattoos or has no, you know, like, like how can you start a dentistry if you don't care about teeth? <laughs> like it's, <laughs> right. Um, it's possible, but I think that you're not in it for the long game and there's going to be issues down the line. Um, I'm curious about, you talked about just the origins of running remote and how you were really solving your own itch there and, and you wanted to build a remote company. So therefore, hey, why not bring in the experts and, and let's learn from them. Um, mm -hmm. What have you learned about validating an event company, right? So, so mm. when you're putting on conferences, how do you actually ensure that you get attendees? How do you ensure that you can yeah. your price point at the right place where you're going to be profitable? All these sort of things come up. Um, what was your, how did you start with that? Yeah, subject I'm really interested in. Uh, so when we started the Running Remote Conference, we were asking ourselves a really important question. So <clears throat> there's, um, there's 12 questions that you should ask inside of the critical thinking theory. Just Google it. And the last question that you should ask yourself is, what assumptions am I making for my conclusions? So what am I assuming to be true? And it may or may not be true. And one of the big ones was, well, I want to learn about this stuff. This is important stuff. And then <clears throat> I said, well, why are there no other conferences that are actually, that have popped up about this particular issue? There are tons of conferences on how to become a digital nomad, how to become location independent, but there were no conferences on just building businesses remotely. And there were actually, so there was one before and it actually there were two before one was a very small one with about 20 to 30 people. Another one had a hundred people. Both of them failed. Uh, one got two years in and another one got one year in and they both shut down. So that's pretty scary, right? So you think to yourself, well, why are these people not succeeding and why are we going to succeed? And what we decided to, what we recognized inside of that business model was that, they were approaching a very high end part of the model. 
So they were charging five to $10,000 to be able to go into this conference. And a lot of remote entrepreneurs, they have a certain amount of money, but they don't have five to $10,000 to spend on a conference that no one really has heard about before. It's a very difficult subject to be able to, a very difficult ask to be able to make. So what we recognized is what we lovingly call the tech bros. Um, so guys that, you know, that wear hoodies like me and uh, are, you know, read like books, like working from home and uh, remote teams work and remote.com. These are the people that are all tech bros. So they're, uh, they're a tech founder that probably runs a company of between 20 to 300 people. And we identified who that person was as an avatar. And we focused all of our marketing efforts specifically on that single individual. Um, we actually call that individual Amir. <clears throat> and he is a, he is a real person. Uh, Amir is the co-founder, or sorry, is the founder of Todoist which is a task management app that runs entirely remotely. And so if we have a speaker as an example that we're not too sure about, we'll actually email Amir about it and say, hey, would you like to see this person speak at a conference? And if he says no, then we don't book him. Um, so it's, it's that simple. And what we recognize is getting into that tech bro segment, then we looked at, well, what's the average price point that a tech bro would pay for a ticket. And we recognized mm. it was about $1,000 US. Right. And that also kept us out of another really important factor, which was there were a whole bunch of digital nomad conferences that were about $200 for a ticket. So we didn't want the digital nomads to come. We wanted the business owner to come. We wanted the person that runs at least a million dollar business to be able to come. If mm. you run a million dollar business, you're going to spend $1,000 on a ticket to be able to learn information. If you have a $50,000 business, you're not going to spend $1,000 on a ticket. So it really allowed us to be able to figure out exactly where, like, you, you want to actually set a price point that is going to scare off the customers that you don't want. And whenever thinking about a conference, you need to really ask yourself, who do I not want to have to come to the conference? Who's not invited effectively? Um, and we were very, very precise about the type of decisions that we were making. And we said, we're prepared to have a much smaller conference, but the right people, at least at the beginning, to be able to build up that core community, that they would be able to actually interact with each other and, and, and get and have the right conversations. So the conversations weren't, um, how do I travel hack, you know, a business class ticket as an example. Well, if you run a tech company with 100 people in it, you don't have the time or the need to travel hack a business class ticket. You just buy a business class ticket. So you kind of just have to connect the right information with the right, um, with the right attendee, the right avatar. And that's the next big, big piece is identifying exactly who I want to target. And then also backing that up with saying, are there other conferences in the space where that happens? Uh, we looked at SaaStock and we looked at Saster. Both of those conferences, Saster has 20,000 people and SaaStock has 5,000 people. So we knew that basically 25,000 people per year were going to an event and the price point started at $1,000 and went up to $2,000. Hmm. So we knew that if we, we could get tech bros definitely in for a grant. That was really, I mean, that that's really cool. And I, I like the differentiation and understanding uh, 
who who we don't want in the room uh, because that dilutes the conversation. And then, you know, if you're running a million dollar company and you're sitting next to someone who's running a $50,000 company, uh, you, you're not going to, you know, most likely not going to get much value from that person uh, or the conversation Absolutely. won't be, right? It's not going to be what, what you want it to be if you're investing to be at that event. Um, very, very cool. All right, let's talk about the, the, the process of building a, you know, a remote first company. Um, are, are you still at 50? Okay, you've got a remote first company with team members in 43 different countries. So uh, talk us through the process of, of how you built that, starting from you. I guess it was you and maybe a co-founder. And then and yes. how, what was that journey like? Yeah, yeah. So my co-founder, Rob, who's the CEO of the company, uh, we, we started that approximately 11 years ago. And um, generally, what you want to be able, what what I think a lot of the world is now recognizing, and they're recognizing it at breakneck speed, is work is no longer a place. So work is now something that you can take with you. And we're seeing a huge shift where everyone on planet Earth is recognizing. This is one of the reasons why the great resignation is currently happening. When you actually ask people, why are they resigning from their jobs? And for those that don't know, the great resignation, um, the United States experienced 3% um, attrition rate in the month of July, which is the highest rate of resignations in the history of the United States. And the same thing is happening all over the world. And the reason is becoming is because work is mobile. You can take your work with you. So a lot of people are recognizing that they can move in and out of positions much faster than they could before. Uh, so we were just doing this 10 years before anyone else was. So we would hire people from all over planet Earth. Uh, it didn't matter where they were located as long as they were just really interested in working on the project that we were passionate about. Um, I wish I could kind of, I mean, if you want me to get into the exact details of it, really it's the majority of those types of positions, you want to be able to start them off on a contractor basis. So you bring them in as a contractor, you say, hey, let's work on a, on a project together. Maybe they're not even working full time on that particular project with you. Maybe they're working half time with you. And then as that, as that position evolves, you turn them into a full time employee. Um, for those that don't want to set up subsidiaries, you want to contact an EOR, an employer of record company. So something like remote.com, globalization partners. Um, they're both really good people to work with so that you can actually hire those people legally. And then really it comes down to increased, making sure that collaboration happens online. That's probably the hardest part of managing remote teams. And that's what most people ask me at this point is how do you actually collaborate online? You can do it. It just requires extra layers of technology in order to be able to do it. We have tools like Zoom and Slack and Basecamp and Trello and Asana and um, all these other systems that we use to be able to create that form of collaboration. And then just really working day in, day out to be able to, to kind of manage that team. It's a little bit different. Like we can't all meet in one place. We do uh, something called an ask me anything uh, session that happens every two weeks inside of the company. And it's primarily led by my co-founder, the CEO of the company, and then sometimes by me. <clears throat> and when you're in 43 different countries, you actually are in a whole bunch of different time zones. So the vast majority of the people can't consume that. So we record it and then we present it asynchronously to everyone. Um, and that's probably the next big thing is 
get really good at working asynchronously rather than synchronously because for me that is not just it doesn't just make remote teams work effectively it makes all teams work so much more effectively the disruptions that you experience throughout your workday is so destructive and if you can just remove a lot of those distractions primarily those distractions come from coworkers your team will be a lot more efficient you uh, naturally brought up a conversation around asynchronous asynchronous work versus synchronous sort of meetings um I know the guys in uh, Basecamp wrote about that first back in their book, you know, remote or whatever it was years ago. Um, but it, it, that's, yeah, so that, that's, <laughs> that's one. Um, tell me about just your experience around that, like when you're dealing with multiple time zones, uh, obviously, what are the benefits of asynchronous communication? And, and when doesn't, and what are the challenges with asynchronous communication? So asynchronous work is probably the single most important accelerator towards all businesses everywhere. If you can optimize your team towards asynchronous work, you will probably get twice as much output per employee than you can if people are all working inside of an office. The issue has been, historically, we've had for the past basically 100 years, we've had this system where everyone commutes into a single place so each person pays an hour or two hours of commute time to be able to come into a single place. And then you have effectively a buffet on collaboration, right? So it's an all-you-can-eat buffet. You collaborate as much as you want because you've all paid that price to be in there. Remote teams have recognized because they don't pay that initial cost to be able to come into that central location, that they can have an a la carte mode towards collaboration. So they can choose when to collaborate and they can also make that collaboration as quick and as efficient as humanly possible. And that's really the core differentiator. Asynchronous teams don't not talk synchronously. We interact synchronously all the time. We have team retreats, we have weekly meetings, but we make them as quick and concise as humanly possible. I'll give you one um, quick example. We have something called silent meetings which is every single week we identify issues that we need to address based off of the metrics that are coming inside of the business. And we talk about those issues asynchronously. So we post it up on an Asana ticket, we have comments, and then if we come to a conclusion, we post the conclusion at the top of the ticket, and then we remove that issue from the discussion. If there are less than three issues for a meeting, we don't do the meeting. It's simple. Uh, we'll go six to seven weeks without actually having a meeting because we don't need to deal with all that bullshit. It's just literally, hey, you know what? We can actually solve all these things, these problems, these issues without having eight six-figure executives sit in, a, sit in a virtual room for 90 minutes. It's a massive, massive waste of resources. And if people don't the people that don't recognize that are going to be completely left behind in this new generation of work. And I think that's where the, you're really touching upon the mindset shift required because a lot of companies, as you can see, are, are going through a hybrid model. They're well, testing hybrid now. Uh, you know, can we do three days in the office or two days in the office and three days at home or whatever it may be? Because um, I think they're still holding on to that you know, traditional mindset of... Yes. For it to I, would be say, but yeah. I would say every hybrid organization right now is saying to themselves, we don't know how to go asynchronous. 
we don't even know what asynchronous is. <laughs> uh, we didn't even know that that was a thing because the vast majority of the people during the pandemic, when they went remote, they just recreated the office virtually. You're not mm. recreating the office. You're creating something different. You're creating a remote organization and a remote organization requires a different methodology. And that methodology is asynchronous work. So that's the piece that I think a lot of people are not really understanding. And I think they're going to come to that conclusion uh, probably within the next six to 24 months. But as of right now, it's very, very difficult to be able to see the light at the end of the tunnel. I think there's going to be a lot of pain in between where people are going to recognize, yeah, um, I can't actually, I have to go into the office, even though I want to work remotely because I don't get access to decision makers. And Suzanne is always screwing up my projects because she has the ear of the decision maker who's in the office. Um, I would probably say if anyone wants to go hybrid, first of all, don't try not to do it. Bring everyone back into the office for crying out loud. That would be a better decision than going hybrid in my opinion. Uh, ideally you should wanna be able to go remote, but if you're going to go hybrid, you need to be able to create equality of access for decision makers. That is by far the most important thing that you can take into consideration. So if you have a virtual employee and you have an in-person employee and the virtual employee says, hey, I wanna work on this project and you say yes. And then the in-person employee comes in and says, actually, I wanna work on the project. And because they're just next to you, you give it to them. That destroys uh, the virtual employee's autonomy. And you need to be able to retain that autonomy for an organization to be able to be successful. Autonomy is absolutely critical. And uh, you're just taking that power away from them. You need to be able to have equal time for all team members, whether they're in the office or outside of the office. Um, yeah, 100% in agreement with that. Because I think it, it's favoritism by convenience is not a great decision. <laughs> like it's, um, uh, it, one of the issues that have come up around sort of switching to remote has been um, how companies decide or, or yeah, how, to, how they determine pay rates. Do you pay, you know, what's, what's equitable pay? And, and because someone's in the office or they're working in Sydney or New York or Montreal, do they get paid more than if someone who moves out and lives, you know, in a suburban area? Uh, what's your take on that? And, and how do you approach that? Difficult one. Um, I think we've got some interesting variables that are coming to light all at the same time. So we ended up hiring uh, someone who got a top, five finish in the Facebook hackathon a few years ago. So they have this global hackathon once a year and this guy got a top five finish in that hackathon. He is hot shit, like just a, a top, top tier developer. And he got an offer from Facebook. He got an offer from Google. He ended up working for us for way less money because we allowed him to be able to work remotely and the other two required him to come into Palo Alto. So we could not have afforded that person at the $400,000 salary that they were, that they were proposing um, mm. to these guys. But we, but he took a much lower salary with us because he could stay in Indonesia and he could continue to live his life with his, you know, with his family. And he was very, very wealthy in Indonesia. The amount of money that we were giving him put him in the top 0.1% of Indonesia. Um, so I think when we look at globally, I think that that is going to keep happening. 
uh, I think you're going to start to see, and it's just because the cost of living is so much cheaper, right? If you live in Bali, as an example, your cost of living, even if you're a Westerner and you live in Bali, your cost of living is like one sixth what it is in Montreal. Cause I know, cause I've been in Bali and I've been in Montreal. Uh, and so it's, it's a very, very difficult thing to be able to take into consideration. I would say within the United States, like within the country, absolutely. It should be the same. Um, I, I don't like what Google is doing where they're saying, if you're in San Francisco, you make 400 grand. And if you're in the middle America, you make 200,000 yeah. as an example. But actually when you think about it, your cost of living is way lower uh, when you're in, I don't know, what's a, what's a middle America town that I can just think about off the top of my head, uh, Indianapolis. Right. <laughs> right. It's like, that is a place that is, is significantly cheaper. And so I don't love it. And I actually think the end point for this is everything's going to flatten out. You're going to have a global price for all of these jobs, right? You're going to have a global customer support price. You're going to have a global engineering price. Um, I think actually right now, when you think about places like San Francisco, they're incredibly overvalued, right? Uh, a junior engineer at Netflix gets paid $380,000 US per year. Mm. That's insane. Um, yeah. that's not, that's not the fair market price. It's just because there's no supply, right? This, there's right. no supply in San Francisco. So they have to drive up the price. Now, when Netflix outside of Netflix, cause Netflix actually wants everyone to come back to the office, but companies like Facebook, they are projecting 50% of their workforce will be completely remote within the next year permanently. Um, mm. they're going to be going after, I will no longer have the opportunity with the guy in Indonesia. They may not be offering them 400,000, but they may be offering them 300,000 who can stay remote. That's when stuff really starts to just blow up everywhere where you see the distribution of, you know, I think San Francisco as like the old Berlin, London, Tokyo, New York, Rome, um, you think about the centers of innovation, the centers of power. And for the first time ever, the centers of power, which I would probably say was San Francisco, when you think about tech, right? The smartest people on planet Earth were in San Francisco. People are leaving San Francisco at a huge clip and they're just redistributing. And the new San Francisco is digital, right? It's in the metaverse. It's, it's just people interacting with other people. So that's going to be a really exciting time because then those dollars are going to get invested in those tertiary markets. They're going to get in, invested in Mumbai instead of Palo Alto, as an example. And that's yep. going to be really exciting for everyone's evolution. You're listening to Authentic Influence. Learn the tips, strategies, and practices for taking your influence to the next level. Now, back to the show. It's fascinating because I, I was involved. So I used to work for HP 2003 when, when a lot of the operation here in Australia was outsourced and globalization had hit and it all went to India. Uh, and one of my roles was actually to go over there and train the people who were replacing my staff here in Sydney. Um, and, and so it's this cyclical and we're seeing this come back again, just in what you're saying here, um, you know, sort of the dollars go to the lower 
what we call the lower economies, but those the rates in India are, are they're substantially greater than than what they were in two thousand and three, right? Like it's it's Absolutely. now. Um, it, it, it's yeah, it's fascinating to see all this happening. Um, when the pandemic hit, sort of you know, 2019, 2020, uh, you were running the conferences, you know, well, they were in Bali and I think you had Mexico as well, or somewhere as well in North America. Um, yeah. uh, or was even Austin, perhaps. Austin. Uh, yeah. Uh, then you were forced to shift to fully remote, uh, yes. running a fully remote experience. How did that, what did you learn from that experience in terms of, of organizing it and then also delivering it? I learned do not uh, buy a room block. Uh, under any circumstances whatsoever that you can't get out of because that's a quarter of a million dollars that I'll never earn back. Um, I learned, uh, what else did I learn? Well, I mean, the transition towards remote was actually something that we really wanted to do. Um, And when we ran our event, we ran it off a platform called Hopin and Hopin's just seen extraordinary growth over the last, uh, during the pandemic, obviously, and they run virtual events. And, we had run and Hopin, I think was only about eight months old. And we ran the largest event on Hopin at that time. We had about 6,000 people at the event and it was fantastic. Uh, and we got this, this form of interaction that just people were really, really yearning for, because I believe that was end of March or early April when we ran that event. And, um, and we put it together literally like, within six weeks, (laughs) we got everyone that we possibly could and said, Hey, we're just going to try to do this. And we're going to try to raise money for charity. And uh, we ended up raising a a nice amount of money for charity and people loved it. But then we did uh, four others and we were getting way better at our processes, but the actual, and the, the event was better. You know, we had, we had a fantastic green room. We had a perfect rundown. All of our logistics were perfectly put together. And yet, actually, we ended up having um, less people attend. And the reason being, when we were getting our feedback from people was they're just burned out from virtual events and they're recognizing that they want that in-person connection. Just like for us in our company, we do team retreats every year. We fly everyone to one location every single year and we meet in person. Running remote needs the same thing. Um, We'll probably have virtual to some degree that exists, but fundamentally, particularly when you're talking about a conference, a sponsor cannot sell a half a million dollars worth of software to someone online. They have to actually do it in person. And that was, um, that was a tough reality for us to be able to accept, but we're pretty clear that that's the way that we need to go um, from an evolutionary perspective. But remote was really fun. And I think it'll actually be a permanent part of every large conference moving forward. I think you'll probably see um, platforms like Hopin continue to persist. I am uh, an investor, full disclosure, in Hopin. So um, good or bad, you know, choose that, choose something else. But I think that they have really company, virtual events will continue to exist, but I think they'll probably be about 20% of the market moving forward. Yeah, that's fascinating. Uh, you mentioned virtual event burnout uh, and that I've been writing a piece around Zoom fatigue um, and, and 
how that's you know the psychologists say that's a real thing and and, and we we've all experienced that too many video calls uh we, we talked about asynchronous. not me because i'm asynchronous <laughs> oh, yeah <laughs> I, I love it okay um so can you talk about the logistics behind async what tools are you using is that is that slack is it what are you doing there uh, you talked about the sure. meetings how do you actually host those so the first thing that you really have to take a look at when you're talking about um, asynchronous communication is it has to come from the top and the top has to say, I do not need an immediate response from you. My ego is small enough that if I, if I send you a Slack message, you don't immediately, you don't have to immediately get back to me. Uh, if anything, you can take 12 hours, 24 hours to be able to reprocess that information. And you really have to reorganize your business to be able to say every single person in that organization should be optimized towards deep work, should be optimized towards solving really hard problems inside of their own jobs. And they should have everything available to them in order to actually accomplish that. So that comes down to building really clear processes inside of your business. That means democratizing all of the information inside of your organization. Every person in our company has the same informational advantage as the CEO. And that's very scary to a lot of people uh, that run businesses because then they say to themselves, oh, well, they're going to be able to steal this piece of information or they're going to be able to, um, they'll quit because we're going through difficult times inside of the business. Maybe they will. That's, a, that's not actually a problem. You need to actually have everyone aligned towards your mission. And when you give people that type of information, they become so much more successful inside of their jobs because they have that informational advantage. They can actually sit at the table and the vast majority of the decisions that you make inside of the organization, if you explain it to them because they have the same access to information, they actually come to the same conclusions. So it's, that's the big thing that you really need to overcome. I, I, you know, I know you're asking for like little tactics, but that's the big chunk that you really need to actually allow to happen inside of your organization. Because once you actually have all of the processes, so like we have, basically we have platform first management, which mm. is the manager is not the person that holds sacred knowledge. It's all, it's our, it's our platform that holds all of our sacred knowledge. And that's accessible by anyone in the organization at any time. So if you work in support, you can figure out what marketing is doing. If you're in marketing, you can figure out what sales is doing. It's all documented there. So it's very, very clear to be able to um, consume and interact with that information. And once you allow people to open themselves up to that opportunity, I know it's scary, but you're going to see massive, massive increases in the overall productivity of, of everyone in the company. I mean, that, that reminds me of uh, something you said in our previous conversation, um, which was around, we were talking about Time Doctor and, uh, you know, one of the, uh, and why people or managers choose to track time of their employees and their team members. And, um, and, and, and one, one of the things that you said back then was, um, you know, it, it, remote, what it does, if you go to remote running, running remotely, what it does, it actually accelerates or, or, or brings to light the issues you have within your culture. So if you have, you know, if you don't trust your employees and you're giving them a, a tool like Time Doctor to just track their time and then say, hey, you know, you didn't do your 40 hours this week um, versus, hey, like, you know, 
using it in a different way in terms of understanding, okay, well, were you productive in those hours or were you challenged or did we not give you sufficient training or whatever it may be? Um, yeah. It really, you know, uh, that's what, you know, what you just said sort of just brought me back to that. Like it, it's about um, democratizing knowledge and, and by doing so you're empowering your team members because they feel like, hey, you actually trust that we're going to do the right thing here. Um, well, and, and not only that, it's giving people freedom yeah. to be able to make their own decisions. Uh, mm -hmm. I don't know if you remember, there was a piece maybe about five years ago where um, there was a guy that was outsourcing his job. Yes. Right? Yeah. So yeah. It's like this famous piece, right? He's completely outsourcing his job. He's hired like two or three assistants and they're doing everything for him. Right. And he's just sitting and, he, and he's doing nothing. Um, if you fired that person, that's one way to do it. I would personally give that person a medal <laughs> and I would say, how did you do that? And can I, can you be in charge of an entire department so that we can do this for everyone? Because how are you, you know, you're, you're paying like one quarter of your salary and you're getting all of this work done. How are you doing that? That's incredibly efficient. Let's actually have you spend more time on, on, on trying to distribute that knowledge to other team members so that we can actually get a lot more productive. And instead of you working on your own personal projects, why don't we have you work on a really difficult problem, right? That, that we're trying to crack right now that you might do, be able to, to, uh, to solve for us. So there's also inside of asynchronous organizations, a real core tenant is, is egolessness. Um, so removing yourself from the process and saying, I'm here to work, work. I'm not here to protect my job. Uh, and, and really, if you truly give people the ability to be able to think that way, they will think like an owner um, so much more than, than what you give them credit for. And they'll come to you saying, it's really stupid to spend my time on this task because uh, we can actually get this task done. We can, we can automate this task and we can basically make my, my, my job redundant. And I actually really want to work on this much more difficult problem up here. That's the kind of stuff. Because if you know, if you give people that freedom to be able to move in those directions, you're going to get it back. And to your point with regards to Time Doctor, um, you know, there are a lot of times, even in our own internal data, where we'll just say, wow, okay, you have, your sales numbers are double everyone else's and you're only doing like 20 hour work weeks. How are you doing that? Yeah. Like, could you show everyone else how to do that? Because we'd really like to know. Um, that's the stuff that a lot of people are shying away from. And if you, again, just democratize information, you make everything public, then everyone else can have access to everyone else's data. Right now, everyone knows that I'm doing uh, this podcast, right? It's measured inside of my time doctor and everyone else in the organization can see exactly what I'm doing. So if I'm putting time in, then you should be putting time in, but figure out exactly what you're, you know, putting your time into um, is by far one of the most, it's a difficult thing to go through, but once you actually figure it out, man, it's going to be amazing. Well, yeah, it's just, it's so liberating when you're in that kind of culture. And I've worked in teams where, uh, you know, the CEO really, 
is not the manager per se. It's more of a, hey, like these are the high level strategic objectives. Um, and how can you, like, we're giving you the power to go and do that. Like go, ha go work it out, right? And, yep. and, and, and they really become, the individuals become, like you say, they become the managers of their own departments or their own, whatever they're, they're working on their projects. Uh, yep. and, and they're more likely to stick around right if, if you give people that um if you come from the premise that people want challenging projects and that's why they're there and you're right. paying them you know well you're not sort of you know that's not even a conversation but um like I, i've had that experience because i was really i was really, i had went through a recent interview process and the person asked me you know uh, you're you're quite entrepreneurial so why would you want to stick around with us for two years three years five years Right? And I said, well, it depends on the project. If, if the project is challenging enough for me and I'm compensated fairly, then why would I want to switch somewhere else? Right. right. Um, uh, okay. So let's, I'm going to bring up, I've just brought up the, the running remote site on, on the screen here. Uh, I wanted to just remind everyone to go and check out runningremote.com. This is the, the world's largest remote work conference. I like that you've got a hybrid model uh, coming up in, in May next year, 2022. Um, I, Fingers crossed. I'd love to get over to Montreal and, and see you in person. Um, but uh, uh, what do you what are you most excited about in terms of having this? Is this the first time you're doing hybrid? Yeah. So this is the first time that we're actually getting back to seeing people in person. So I'm I'm really excited about it. Um, it is definitely a time. Uh, I mean, we're we're right now in the state of Omicron, so we don't know what's going to happen over the next couple of weeks, but fundamentally for us, it's it's what we need to do to be able to get back to things. So we're really excited about doing it. And we have, you know, like founder of Expensify, Dan Martell from SAS, SAS Academy. We've got Nathan Barry. We've got Nick Francis and Sarah Sutton. Um, these are all people that run billion dollar plus remote first organizations. So if you want to learn how to actually build those types of organizations, this is definitely the place for you. Uh, and, and that's what I'm really excited about. It's just focusing in on how do you build tech, how do, how do you build not just tech unicorns, but just unicorns in general, billion dollar plus, plus valuation companies that are remote because it's possible. Um, and actually, if anything, the pandemic has shown us that it's probably the most probable uh, version moving forward. Absolutely. Uh, and I want to just to come down to fully vaccinated. I love the safety pledge. You got to say that. Um, yep. And then we're down here. Okay. I'm writing a book about social proof, right? So I am very fascinated by how you utilize case studies, testimonials in your marketing. Um, you do something was I've noticed with running remote. You've got a podcast. You've got speakers who are credible. Uh, you've got you know, and storytelling has been a very powerful part of the the running remote experience i mean i've been you know i've seen it from day early early on in the piece so can you talk to just um where you see trust what's going on with trust online all right mm. um and you know and now it's almost part of me is, is, is trying to not jump into the whole web3 conversation <laughs> right now but sure. um but i do want to talk about just your take on testimonials case studies why do you use them in your marketing you've got sponsors here so you're using you're really uh utilizing credibility and social proof uh in your marketing and and, and why is that important for you well it number one it is the highest um source of user acquisition 
like if you add up all of our other sources of user acquisition, it doesn't equal referrals, right? So there's just that. <laughs> uh, how do people come and see, how do people learn about running remote? They usually learn from another attendee that's attended the conference and said, hey, it's great. That's actually why we ran all of our events virtually for free, because we said to ourselves, if we produce a really good product and our products were costing, you know, a hundred grand per free event, as an example, hmm. to be able to run. Uh, we had a staff, you know, we were running these events um, every quarter. And once you get a taste of that, then you tell other people. The, we talk about product-based marketing. Product-based marketing is really the only form of marketing that I would invest in at this point. Uh, you know, you, you look at uh, people like Elon Musk from Tesla. Tesla doesn't buy any advertising. Why? Because they have a really good product and they invest all of their dollars into the product. And then people talk about that product. So that's why we use referrals and we use those forms of authority. One of our most difficult um you know, steps for running remote was when we didn't have any speakers and we didn't have any attendees because people had to say to themselves, hmm, am I going to take a chance on these guys? Am I going to put a thousand dollars down with people that don't really know what they're doing? Well, they do now know what they're doing. Um, and it's so much easier once you get those testimonials in there. I, I mean, we've been uh, just even on Time Doctor's side, 75% of our user acquisition funnel is through referrals, um, just to kind of give you context on that one. So it's hugely influential to our overall business model. How are you tracking that? Is that is that an affiliate link? Is that you know UTM codes? What what are you doing there to get? That no, data? quantitative attribution is bullshit at this point. It doesn't really work anymore. Uh, so once you've lost, we've lost first party cookies. So mm -hmm. you know Apple started. Then Facebook basically kicked back. Um, Google is probably, Android is probably going to get rid of first-party cookies pretty soon, except for their own products. So what you really want to do is uh, get a, where did you hear about us uh, pop-up after yep. they make a purchase. And then you'd be blown away at how many people just say, oh, well, my friend referred me, or I heard about them on a podcast, or I did this, or I did that. So it's channel-based attribution as opposed to the individual unit. And there's a lot of machine learning apps out there that you can use now that will actually be able to tell you, hey, Liam, you should do more podcasts because that's actually ROI positive. Or you should, you know, like here are the seed sources that are acting towards your referrals directly. Are there any specific tools that come to mind when you talk about channel-based attribution and, and, and access? Uh, yeah, I mean, that's, I'd have to talk to my, um, my my acquisition people but <laughs> man it's like if you just google like machine learning attribution uh you'll probably get a ton of stuff that pops up and a lot of this stuff is relatively simplistic they're literally mm -hmm. just using those types of pop-ups so they'll install the pop-up and they'll say all right we know that um we're getting a lot of sources from liam's podcasts and how much do liam's podcasts cost okay well they cost an hour and a half of Liam's time plus half an hour of logistics time and, and half an hour of outreach time per podcast booked. What's the ROI on that? You run those numbers. Should I be sitting in podcasts and doing nine a day? You know, it's, it's pretty simple math once you actually run it. And 
a lot of people just don't even bother. And what they what they actually instead focus on is first party attribution. So when you look at first party attribution, a whole bunch of people just type in running remote and come to running remote and buy a ticket. They didn't just magically discover running remote, right? Yeah. There's something else that happened before that point and you need to figure out what that is so that you can actually figure out your full attribution model. Uh, and pop-up is really the, you know, where did you hear about us? Pop-up is by far the best source that we currently have today. Even better than first-party attribution. People are trying to make it a lot more complicated than it needs to be. It doesn't need to be complicated. Yeah, that's, a, that's a, such a good point. And, uh, and another good point you raised around just privacy uh, shifts that are going on with Apple and with uh, the, the various companies. Um, removing cookies and these sort of things. Uh, yeah, which, with GDPR yeah. and and Apple, yeah. just that. Like, good luck. It's just it, it's it's not a model that I would hitch my you know hitch my car to personally. I would just focus on channel based attribution, and then there's a lot of machine learning that you can do to be able to really kind of figure out very specifically. Hey, what should you be doing with your workday? Fantastic. Okay, we're going to wrap up. Just a couple of questions for you. Uh, you you have a very strong sense of uh, how marketing works. You've done well with your, your several different companies here. Uh, what's been a great resource for you, whether it's book, course, mentor, whoever it may be, that's really helped you understand um, how to do marketing effectively? I'd probably say a good high-level one is Zero to One by Peter Thiel fantastic book on how to build fast growing tech startups and really get that initial traction that you need to be able to go from zero to something. Uh, another one is probably anything by Eric Reese uh, really focuses on just that initial methodology from a product-based perspective, getting yourself up and running. And then I'd probably say overall marketing, um, man, you know, Neil Patel has a ton of free content on his, on his blog. Uh, and if you just Google Neil Patel, a lot on the kind of inbound funnel uh, stuff. And then actually another really good book is um, From Impossible to Inevitable. Uh, and I can't remember the name of the author right now. It's, it's unfortunately just escaped me, but fantastic book on how to really do outbound user acquisition at scale. And that's been, um, that's basic. Those are basically my Bibles that I use. Okay. Looking it up. Uh, okay. Andrew hollow. Oh, there you From go. Impossible to possible. Okay. Fantastic. We'll link to those in the show notes. Um, and final question for you. Uh, what's one thing that you do for your mental health? Play with baby Stella. <laughs> Uh, it's great. What were you doing before you had your daughter? <laughs> Drinking. Uh, no, I was, uh, I go to the gym. Uh, physical exercise is like, you know, if you're, if you're not feeling good, uh, do intense cardiovascular exercise for 20 minutes. You'll feel better. Get into the body. Mm -hmm. And that gets your, that forces you out of your mind. <laughs> it, it forces you out of your mind. Um, you need to exercise cardiovascularly until you cannot think anymore. And for anyone that's run really fast, you know at what point that is where you're just simply reacting to things. And what that allows is for your subconscious mind to also process a bunch of information. Uh, so I like to get on a row machine 
and get on that thing for about 20 minutes. It's a full body workout, works out your back as well, works out your arms. And uh, 20 minutes later, you are going to feel better, I guarantee it. Are you listening to anything when you're doing that or just complete silence? Uh, usually I'm either listening to a podcast or sometimes I'm listening. If I'm really frustrated, I'm listening to like some epic soundtrack music. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I just ended up finishing the Money Heist series. Oh, and so good. Fantastic, yeah, they got a fantastic soundtrack as well. So I was right. playing that in my years when I was at the gym. Yeah, I, yeah my, my uh, assistant got me onto that and I was just binging the whole thing last weekend. <laughs> I was like, that that is a crazy series. I love it. Yeah. Uh, all right, Liam, appreciate your time, everyone. Runningremote.com, check that out. Timedoctor.com, staff staffing, is it staffing.com? Staff.com. Staff.com, sorry. Uh, let's get those right. Um, and you can connect with Liam there. And if you are up for the conference, I'd highly recommend. And if you fit the criteria and you actually are building a billion-dollar business remotely, um, that's where you want to go. Uh, thanks for your time, mate. Any, la any last words for our audience here? Uh, I hope that you guys enjoy building your remote companies. And if you're interested in coming and running remote, see me there. All right. Thank you, everyone. And we will see you on the next episode. Now, just quickly, if you want to check out the show notes for this episode, just head over to simplecreativemarketing.com forward slash podcast, uh, and you can grab all the links and things and resources on there. And also, if you are a conscious entrepreneur, got a professional services business, working B2B, uh, and you've got an interest in building influence and income through showing up, serving others, and being real, then I invite you to join my Authentic Influence Warriors Facebook group. Uh, if you want to do that, just head over to simplecreativemarketing.com forward slash community. Okay, thanks for joining in, and I'll see you on the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Authentic Influence Podcast at AuthenticInfluence.co.